Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, and extending to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. This is God's word. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill. And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we sang just a moment ago, we are resting, resting in the Lord Jesus. And we're finding out the joy that is ours in Him. We're exploring even this day, even this passage, what it means to find that rest in Jesus. And how so often the ways that we live just shred the rest that is ours in Christ. Undermines it, subverts it. And that we are prone to a kind of deep restlessness. That is the very opposite of what it is you wish and want for your people. Lord, we would ask right now that you would help us see what it is you would want us to see from this passage. To receive this word as it's intended for every heart in this room. To do a kind of spiritual surgery on us. To take out that which is diseased. And to heal, to replace, to put in a heart of flesh that knows you experiences the rest that is to be found in you, and can with joy begin to follow you. Lord, awaken us now by the power of your resting grace as we look to the face of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that Jesus has been in one controversy after another. 
started at the beginning of Mark chapter 2 when he declared to the paralytic, man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, the scribes, began to ask the question, how can this guy say such a thing? Only God can forgive sins. It moved to last week where we considered the kind of company that Jesus keeps, a disreputable sort, a kind of motley crew of tax collectors and prostitutes and the like. And they questioned Jesus about why he's willing to be welcomed in to a community with, well, with a reputation. And then we saw in that final story last week that Jesus' disciples, well, they're just not as religiously fastidious and as detailed as the disciples of John and the Pharisees. They don't fast as they ought to fast. And Jesus says, well, no, when the bridegroom is here, it's a time for celebration. It's a time to feast. And each of these responses of Jesus, each of these words of Jesus, are in many ways a rebuke to the religious establishment of his day. And we see a very similar thing happening here. Happening in the passage before us. A series of controversies. But a, but a series of controversies that are, that are escalating. They're not just little minor disruptions. Uh, little tinges of frustration here or there. I want you to see that they're the temperature is rising with each of these controversies. Um, things are getting layered. Jesus is described for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark as angry in this passage, in verse 5. Because he sees in the heart of the religious leaders a hardness, a callousness to what the Gospel, the covenant promises are all about. And we see that the Pharisees and the scribes by the end of this passage aren't just a little peeved at Jesus. It says they went out and counseled with another group, the Herodians, as to how they could destroy him. Things are about to get serious. Now, one of the things that you might ask yourself is, how does... How does an argument or a disagreement move from frustration to threats of violence? How does that happen? How does, how does one's emotions get so caught up in a disagreement or an allegation or a claim, the kind of claims that Jesus makes here in this passage, where you can't just say, oh, we just agree to disagree. You, you see it your way and... I see it my way. That's okay. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. How is it that the conflicts, the controversies of Jesus are moving from, hmm, how is it that he can say he forgave sins, to verbal questioning and sparring, to a place where we go out and plot your death? In a matter of a few stories, that's the kind of escalation we're already seeing in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a foreshadowing of where the entirety of the Gospel of Mark is going. To an ultimate controversy and conflict. Where these same scribes and Pharisees, arising out of this conference with the Herodians, are going to work with the Roman government to ensure that this man gets nailed to a cross. 
Now, what I'd like to suggest in here is that this is not just mere theological disagreement about the Sabbath. Oh, it's that. That's the presenting matter. But underneath the presenting matter, as in all of these controversies that we're looking at, there's something more core that's being addressed. Core with regards to how the Pharisees and the scribes understand themselves and understand their relationship with God and how Jesus is systematically dismantling their sense of identity, their sense of acceptance, their sense of approval. The myth, we might say, that they believed about themselves. You see, Jesus is not just disagreeing at an intellectual or theological level. He's actually poking the bear of their heart. And what happens when we begin to look at the law, which is really what this text is about, these stories is about, is about the law of God, how it works, how it's in relationship with Jesus Christ, how is the law actually good news, ultimately as it relates to Christ. As we uncover these realities today, I want you to see that part of what God wants to do in your heart and life is to dismantle some of your own identities. Your own tendency of how you think about yourself with regards to your goodness. With regards to your law keeping. With regards to your social acceptance. And he wants to begin to rebuild your sense of identity around who Christ is and Christ alone. In order to do that, I want to look at this passage with you in three ways this morning. And, and I want to do it differently than I, than I often do. I want to look at the text, but then I also want to look, as it were, underneath the text and behind the text. into a lot of what I think is going on in the hearts of the characters who are here within the text. Which means we'll jump between these stories a little bit and we'll tease out some applications as we go along. But I think this is a bit of a, a grid, or we might say even a bit of a paradigm that we can... We can work from as we consider this text together. And I want you to evaluate it with your own heart. These are the three things I want you to, to kind of lodge away as we're looking at this, this text together. The first is this. There is a way of keeping the law that leads to rest. There really is. You might be saying to yourself, I don't, I don't know that way. I'd like to learn about that way. There is a way that, of keeping the law that actually leads to to rest. And there is a way that keeping the law, secondly, there is a way of keeping the law that leads to restlessness. It leads to restlessness. And that may be the one we're more familiar with in our souls as we look at this text together. And then thirdly, I want you to see that there is a law keeper who is our true and lasting rest. Thirdly, I want you to see there is a law keeper. There's only one. And it ain't you. And it ain't me. There's a law keeper who is our true and lasting rest. All right? There's a way of keeping the law that leads to rest, a way of keeping the law that leads to restlessness, and there's one law keeper who is our true and lasting rest. Let's look at this way of keeping the law that leads to rest. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm playing on the idea of Sabbath by using that language of rest. Now, if you're new to Christianity or 
or maybe unfamiliar, at least with the stories of, of the Old Testament, that language of Sabbath may not immediately ring any bells for you. It's an Old Testament Hebrew word and term uh, that we see showing up first in Genesis chapter 2 and then again in Exodus chapter uh, 20. And the idea of Sabbath uh, and Sabbath keeping, which I think is a pretty foreign concept actually, in our own day and time, is woven into the idea of, the, of how the world is created or constructed. You'll remember in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created the world in six days. He, he labored and made all that was made. And then on the seventh day, we're told in Genesis chapter 2, He finished His work. And on the seventh day, on that Sabbath day, that seventh day, He ceased from all his labor. Now that word ceased or, or finished is the word Shabbat or the Hebrew word Sabbath. It literally means to stop or to cease. He'd been frenetic. He'd been walking around doing work as it were, active and involved and, and busy. And then as it came to the seventh day, he finished his work. And what was, if we can put it this way, the work that he did on the seventh day? Rested. That's the work that he did on the seventh day. Now notice how I said that. The work that he did on the seventh day, the calling of the seventh day, was rest. It was rest. In fact, the language that's used there in Genesis 2 is an unusual word for rest, a kind of creative activity where God himself is taking in the joy of what it is that he has made. He is, he is rejoicing in, if we can put it this way, the fruit of his labors. And he's looking out at it and he is saying, this is good. This is good. It's the grand exhale of the creation story. And, and God is displaying that in Genesis chapter 2. Now here's what's interesting. When he does that, he weaves that into the whole design of the world. It creates a pattern. For the way in which we are to live. He weaves it into the commandments. You could look at Exodus chapter 20 for instance. And this may seem real odd to you. In fact I noted this last night as I was walking through today's service with my family. Preparing to worship today. And I asked the, the, the children. Is it strange to you that right next to thou shalt not murder. Is keep the Sabbath day. Is it sort of. Strike you as a bit ironic? They're like, don't commit adultery, oh, and rest. Because if you, you look at those two and you think to yourself like, well, yeah, one seems kind of a big deal. And one seems like a really small deal. And yet for the Lord, he's woven them together into the very commandments of God. That this is one of the ten commandments that he gives to his people. That the restfulness of his people, the acknowledging and the remembering of the Sabbath day, is put on par with such commands as thou shalt not steal. I think that's quite remarkable and deserves our acknowledgement that he's woven this pattern of rest as a priority, an imperative, a command of his people. And it says, here's the reason we are, we are to do it. Because God worked on, for six days a week. He worked six days in creation and then he rested on the Sabbath day. That's what Exodus 20 tells us. That we are to pattern our lives after the God who made us in whose image we are formed and shaped. And that's a huge deal. 
It's actually a huge picture as to who it is that we are to become. We are to become like the God who made us. And we can't become like the God who made us if we don't pattern our lives after the pattern that God, the God who made us patterned his own life, so to speak. Now, here's a question, and I think it's important in this text especially, as we think about these regulations and commands and Sabbath-keeping that's kind of a focus point of here of, of Mark 2 and 3 is, why, why did God cease from his work? You know, it wasn't, if I can say it this way, it wasn't because he was tired. You remember, our God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So he didn't run out of steam and go, i got to take the afternoon off because I'm, I'm really worn out. Why did, he, why did he rest on the seventh day? Well, listen, the only reason he rested on the seventh day was for you. Was for you. To give you the pattern of living six days in labor and one day in rest. To show you how you are to live. To be for you a pattern and an example. This is what we actually see when we say we see in verse 20, uh, well, not verse uh, 27. Yeah, it is verse 27. That language, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was made for you. I established this for you. I, I did this for you. I exemplified it and patterned my own behavior in creation along a six and one pattern in order that you would walk according to that same pattern. And, and really the question that Jesus is raising here in the text, and I think this is, again, all sort of foundational to help us understand what's going on here, is he's asking the question of the Sabbath is to the Pharisees. Who is working for who here? Who is working for who here? Are we working for the Sabbath? Or is the Sabbath working for us? And Jesus is saying, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Now, the reason that's so important is I think most of our dialogues around the issue of Sabbath have to do with us trying to fulfill the Sabbath and be faithful to it rather than asking the question, how are we kept by the Sabbath? How are we kept by the Sabbath, right? You remember these dialogues? You've probably had these dialogues. I grew up in a church that had these dialogues all the time. Can you mow your grass on Sunday? Can you do it? Right? Can you go out to eat on Sunday? And there's people around you where you're enjoying food, making other people work on the Lord's day. Can you do that in clear conscience? Or is that sinful? Is that a violation of the Sabbath? Can you, at 12 o'clock today, turn on your television... And watch the Tennessee Titans beat the Houston Texans. Can, can, you, can you watch them do that today? Is that a, a violation of the Sabbath? Now, is your blood pressure rising as I ask these questions? Right? It, it is a little bit. You're like, he's really stepping in it this morning. Like, he's gonna, he is going to go for it. Um, he's going after all the stuff on the Sabbath day today. You know why your blood pressure rose? You know what you start? You're like... 
I think he's going to tell me I've been a really bad boy. And he's going to tell me I don't need to do these things. These are all wrong and sinful. I need to go work to keep the Sabbath. I've got to do better. Okay? Now, I'm actually not going to answer all those questions. So take a little sigh of relief for a second. In part... Because I actually, the point of this text is in some ways not ask, answer those questions. The point of this text is to not answer those questions. In some ways to say, as important as those questions deserve reflection, and they do for each and every one of us. And they deserve a number of answers. Notice how I said that. A number of answers. For all of us in this room. The heart of what Jesus is getting at in this particular text is to say that is not the first question when it comes to the Sabbath. The question of the Sabbath is not what you do, but what God did when he made it. That's the question of the Sabbath. What's the design of it? What's the intention of it? So if you can see the intention of the Sabbath in God's pattern and example was to actually do this. It was meant to give rest to the weary. It was meant to strengthen the weak. It was meant to heal the broken. It was meant to replenish those who feel drained. It was meant to give you the rehabilitation that your soul so desperately needs in order to take joy in that who God is and what it is that he's done and to get you ready to continue to answer the calling that the Lord has placed on your life the next six days as they unfold. Now here's, here's why this is a little ironic in this text. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. That's the big design of the Sabbath. And most of our questions get us anxious rather than getting excited about the purpose of what the Sabbath was created. The religious leaders in both of the stories in this text have turned the design of the Sabbath on its head. They've turned the design of the, of the Sabbath on its head. Instead of it being a day of rest, they've turned it into a list of to-dos or not-to-dos to make them feel good about keeping it. In a strange way, they've made the Sabbath feel like work. Like weariness. Like I'm missing out. Do you remember this feeling as a kid? <laughs> you, you, may, you may feel it even as well. You mean I don't get to do that on the Sabbath day? Right? It's loss. It's like, it's like something's missing in the day. Or like something's wrong with it. Like it's less than. When the whole design and teaching of the scripture is, no, this is what you were intended for. This is the abundance. This is the fullness. This is what everything is trending towards. This is a gift. The Sabbath was made for you. Not you for the Sabbath. And what we're seeing is that in the scriptures, there is a way of looking at the law or keeping the law that gives rest. And there's a way of looking and keeping at the law that creates more restlessness. And it depends on how you look at it, how you engage it, how you interact with it. Let me just take the other commands for just a second. When God says, thou shalt not lie, he's not trying to um, keep you from something that's fun, that you, that you want to do. He's He's parametering or hemming you in to say, if you cross over the line of lie, from truth to lie, you begin to live in an alternate reality 
and you begin to experience guilt, and you begin to live um, inconsistently and broken in community with others as you share in that lie with them, and you know what begins to happen to your soul? Restlessness begins to happen. I'm not saying don't commit adultery because it's not fun. I'm saying that if you commit adultery, it will haunt you unto restlessness. It will unsettle your soul. That fleeting moment of pleasure will cause you a lifetime of angst. When he gives a law to his people, it is a gracious command that's intended to give our souls rest. Peace. G.K. Chesterton years ago said the law is really the fences around a playground. It's the fences around a playground. If you remove the fences, somebody's going to run out in the street and get run over. But if you keep the fences up and you run in the midst of the fences, you'll find it's a playground. It's a place of great joy. It's a place for which you were designed. Do you see, isn't that what we saw in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? God put up a fence. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's why we call it a trespass, right? We passed over a, a boundary marker. And when they went for the fun, that God said, it's not as much fun as it looks. I promise. There are consequences that ensue from that. It spawned a restlessness in their own soul, that lost the communion with the Lord and undermined the design for which they were made. And every single one of us in this room, listen, every, every one of us knows that experience, knows that feeling. So when we're looking at the law, one of the important things to see is there's a way of looking at the law and engaging with the law and keeping the law that brings rest, and there's a way of engaging and keeping with the law that engenders restlessness. Now, when you see this in the midst of the text, we see that in the first story, the disciples are going along plucking some grain. They're plucking some grain. They're traveling. They're along the edges of a, of a, of a field. They're hungry. It's the Sabbath day. They take a few kernels and, and they eat them. Now, if you're saying to yourself, okay, this was, this was probably wrong. They're stealing from, from someone, right? You're thinking that. Wrong. So Deuteronomy chapter 23, you can check it later this afternoon. Deuteronomy chapter 23 actually um, instructs the people of Israel to when they harvest, leave the margins of their field unharvested for the poor and for the traveling so that when they come by, they can have sustenance. It's actually a designed charity structure of the Old Testament. It's a way for all of us to care for the people who are needy around us, okay? The disciples are simply utilizing the very clear biblical instruction of Deuteronomy chapter 23 as they're traveling, gleaning along the edge of the forest. The issue is not that they're stealing. That's not the concern. It's not what they're doing. What's the concern? When they're doing it. On the Sabbath day. Why is it your disciples do what is unlawful, we're told, on the Sabbath day. They're breaking the law on the Sabbath day. Now, what are they referring to when they say that? Because if you look at the, the Sabbath commands, you actually don't find what they're talking about. It's not in the Bible. 
But it is in what's called the Mishnah. Uh, The Mishnah is the oral tradition and additional regulations and commands that rose up around the teaching of the Old Testament to help us adjudicate matters, to know if we're doing the right thing, getting into all the particulars of the circumstance to know that we're really keeping the law. There were 39 ways to break the Sabbath in the Mishnah, including, well, okay, including you could, you could untie your cattle and, and walk them for at least a short distance to get water. But if you walk them for a short distance to get water, they need not carry a load. If they carried a load, you're violating the Sabbath. If you went too far, you're violating the Sabbath. And if you went to certain whales other than other whales, you're violating the Sabbath. But if you could figure out how to get your cattle water within those parameters, then you were keeping the Sabbath. That's one example of the Mishnah. And another example of the Mishnah is there was no winnowing, no plucking of grain, and no harvesting on the Lord's day. How is it that your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Lord's day? Now, Jesus uses an example in the midst of this text from 1 Samuel 21. That's a very strange story, right? Have you never read, verse 25, what David did when he was in need and was in hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful. Notice that's the same language the Pharisees used above. Which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. Do you not remember this story, Pharisees? 1 Samuel 21, when David did what was not lawful, when he was in need and ate the bread of the presence, which was only lawful for the priest to eat, speaking of the tabernacle and the temple. Do you remember that story? He's raising the question that there are certain circumstances by which crossing over, quote-unquote, the law actually keeps... The law. What do I mean by that? Think of it in the context of this story. The disciples are traveling on their way. They're hungry. It's the Sabbath day. They need food. What's the Sabbath day for? What's its purpose? What's its design? To restore the weary. To feel the empty. To give strength to those who need sustenance. That's the very purpose of the Sabbath. But the Pharisees are saying, No, you just need to go hungry. In order to keep the Sabbath, you're going to need to subvert the very design of the Sabbath. You're going to need to remain empty... And get more weary and not gain rest in order to keep the Sabbath. Because our our regulations say that you'd be breaking the Sabbath. They are actually keeping the law in a way that subverts and destroys the very essence of the law. They have created rules, in other words, if I could put it this way, that have made them dumb. That have made them ridiculous. That have made them silly. That have caused the Sabbath to be a burden 
rather than a blessing. Now listen, you know how this works in your own heart and life, don't you? When you hold on to some principle with such tenacity and some form of that principle or expression of it that's so important to you, and though it's not working and it's causing all kinds of collateral damage and everyone around you is frustrated by how it is that you're responding, you're going to hold on to it anyway, even though the Bible didn't command it. Because it's just what you have embraced. It's how, in some ways, you feel good about yourself. Do you see, that's really what the Mishnah is all about. The Mishnah is about the scribes and the Pharisees wanting to be sure that they have done absolutely everything to fulfill the law, and there's no way that they have fallen short of it. And the only way they know to do that is to create a bunch of measurable regulations that they can tick the boxes of and feel really good about their righteousness. Feel really good about their righteousness. So let me give you an example. You've heard this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And your neighbor is yourself. You heard, you heard that one? It's really big. Like it encompasses everything. Is there a part of you that says, well, when it says mind, what does it really mean? Like, like does that include the opposite political party that... I'm then the one that I'm voting for. Love the Lord your God with that and with my neighbor. Does does that really does that include people who don't who are who are mean to me? Enemies, so to speak. I mean, does that include the moment when my spouse ticks me off? And my children rebel in disrespect. I mean, is it really trying to... No, I want to know specifically. I want to know particularly what thoughts we're talking about and what feelings and what actions uh, because that, there's no way. There, there's no way to do what it's asking me to do. So I've got to come up with a list of regulations that minimize and reduce the impact of that law. Because why? I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> you see, there's an impulse inside each and every one of us to know so specifically how, what it means to keep the law that it makes us restless in our anxiety to keep it because we're really focused on us rather than upon the Christ who is the fulfillment of the law for us. Rather than on the Christ who is the fulfillment of the law for us. See, that's the point in the, the man with the withered hand. The man with the withered hand, here he is, it's the Sabbath day. It's a man who needs healing. And Jesus says, should we consider this healing a work that violates the Sabbath? Or should we consider this healing... The very fulfillment of what the Sabbath is given for. 
healing, restoring, bringing to right the things that are wrong. Should we see this as action that's labor? Or should we understand this, this grace that's abundant and blessing? That fulfills the very essence of the command. And he looks to the scribes and to the Pharisees and says, Is it okay to do good or to do harm on the Lord's day? To save a life or to destroy it? And we know their answer not because they responded, but because of how they responded to Jesus at the end of the story. Isn't this ironic? They're so committed to their rules that they're willing to destroy the Lord of the Sabbath in order to keep their rules. In order to keep their rules, why? Because their rules was their way of knowing that they were okay. That they were okay. That they were good enough. That they had done what was right. That God accepted them. That they were included in the right group with the right people. The law was the way that they felt good about themselves. And when Jesus started dismantling the way that they were treating the law and using it as a means of salvation, rather than running to him, the Savior, who is the law keeper, who is the only one who can save us, he wasn't just disagreeing with them. He was dismantling them. The very foundation of their life. Have you ever noticed in yourself when someone either attacked a position that you feel very um, close to, very held to, deeply committed to? Or, or have you ever noticed when someone provokes something in you where you, you could tell your response to what their words was exaggerated, was over the top, was too much? It's likely that they're not just disagreeing with you. It's likely they're messing with your, their, your sense of yourself. This is why confession is really so hard when it comes down to it. You know the worst thing in the world is getting caught in sin. It's the worst thing in the world. Because then if someone catches you, <laughs> they know you're not who you act like you are. And that's the worst feeling in the world. Except that we already knew that about you. We already knew that. The Bible has already been telling us that from the very beginning. That's no surprise whatsoever. We all are in need of a Savior. We're all in need of a law keeper who will keep the law for us. Which is why Jesus says in here, listen, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Listen, at the end of the day, no day is going to give you rest. And no regulations of keeping the law is going to give you rest. It'll only give you restlessness. At the end of the day, I am your Sabbath. I am your Sabbath. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat. I will give you rest. I am the fulfillment of the seventh day. I am the reality of the seventh day coming to you in person. Because what you need is not another vacation. What you, what you don't need is just an afternoon nap. What you need is a Savior 
who will relieve the burdens of your conscience that makes your heart riddled with guilt and shame. You need a Savior who can expunge the record so that you can live in total freedom and acceptance with the Lord and know rest. That's what you need. And this is exactly what happens when Jesus is on the cross, do you understand? Do you know, I've, I just it struck me this morning just in prayer that the words... On the seventh day, he finished his labors and he rested on the seventh day. That's just the same pattern in the cross, isn't it? Because there on the cross, at the moment where all of our lack of Sabbath keeping (laughs) is poured out on Jesus. And he fulfills the fullness of the satisfaction that is needed for the atonement of our sins. He on the cross cries out what? It is finished. It is finished. That The rest has been secured. The seventh day is, is a reality. It's a reality now through the atonement of which I have made for my people. It is finished. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is singing over you, if you're one of his followers and believers in him today, as he wants you to know, listen, there's no amount of, of attempts at goodness or, or felt sense of acceptance or successes that are ever going to get you to a place where your heart's really going to be restful. Because you'll only experience that for a moment. And then it'll be the next benchmark or the next finish line. He wants you to know that you wake up every day with the words, It is finished. It's ringing over you. Which is why when he was resurrected, he was resurrected on the first day of the week. Do you ever, you ever wonder how we move from... Saturday to Sunday? Well, that's how we did it. You begin to see in the book of Acts, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised on a, on a Sunday, which was the first day of the week. We're the first day of the week, right? He was raised on the first day of the week, and it changed from Saturday to Sunday as the people of God in the book of Acts begin to worship, we're told, on the Lord's Day. They begin to gather on the Lord's Day. That's what they called it, the Lord of the Sabbath. They begin, to, they begin to gather on His day. What was His day? The first day of the week. Notice, not the last day. What does that mean? You know what it means? It means that we don't end our week in work or end our week in rest. What is it? We begin our week in rest. We begin our week in rest. The very first day of your week is given to rest. And you know what that's supposed to mean? That every other day that you work is a working restfulness. Working from a place of rest. You see, as a Christian, you don't work to rest. You from rest from a restful heart, a heart at peace, a heart aligned with the grace of God, you now put yourself to work because you don't have to work to prove anything. You get to work in rest knowing that Jesus has proved everything, that his love for you is sufficient for all of your shortcomings. We have a law keeper who is our true and enduring rest. Father in heaven, we would ask even right now as we remember these truths before your very presence that you would grant to us on this Lord's day true rest. We admit to you sometimes we come into this house and into worship and it is to us uh, another extension of our performance from the week. Right now we just lay that at your feet. 
You are not interested in our burnt offerings and sacrifices. What you are interested in is a broken and contrite heart. You are interested in a heart that is resting in you. Jesus, we are resting, resting in the joy of what thou art and finding out the greatness of your loving heart. Oh, show us that continually as we worship you in spirit and in truth. This we pray in Jesus' name.